we are in flyover country of Ecclesiastes. Now, for most of us, you're like, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is flyover country. This isn't a book I necessarily jump into. It is not the easiest book in the world or the most approachable book in the world uh, to move towards. But chapters 3, verse 16, which is about, we, we went through verse 15 last, last week. Um, chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter, all the way through chapter 4 is one long section. And the theme of this section is the teacher is showing us all the ways that life is hard and that we make it harder. There is, so he runs chunk by chunk, section by section, of these various ways in life in which life is dis- difficult, in which it's vain in the sense that it's hard to grasp. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing. It's here for a second and is gone. These difficulties often may look sad or sor- sorrowful, or maybe simply just times that appear downright stupid. We just can't understand why they would be these seasons in our life. And so we, we see in, in chapter 3, verse 16 through 22, is that he reminds us that life is unjust and unfair. That the righteous, unjust things happen even to the righteous. And we're going to look at that more thoroughly at an even longer section where he dives into that in a couple of weeks. And chapters 4, verses 13 through 16, which will follow the reading where we are today, he'll remind us that power and prestige will, and fame will come and go. So it's not something worth grabbing hold of. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And today we're going to see that life is difficult because there are unhappy things driving our work and at the same time that ruin our relationships. That's what we're looking at this morning. Things that that drive us crazy to workaholism and at the same time ruin our relationships. Today we're going to look simply at verses 4, chapter 4, verses 4 through 12 Let's read together. I'll read out loud. You read along with me in your own Bibles as I read out loud. Then I saw all that toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's, That's fun. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other Neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, there's a billboard uh, prominently displayed on Highway 61. You've probably seen this billboard a a number of times that could summarize well the what the teacher here of Ecclesiastes, that's what Ecclesiastes literally means, the teacher, Koheleth in the Hebrew. And what he's trying to communicate to us about how life is hard. That in the ever-changing experiences, there are things that are hard. And there's a, there's a, there's, this billboard says this, life is hard, it is harder alone. Life is hard, it is harder alone. And I want to suggest to you that we have lost our way in regards to friendship. And I don't mean simply out there, I mean in here. According to one sociological study, it showed that 40 years ago, only 20% of people described themselves as lonely. The same study 
shows now that now more than 50% of people describe themselves as lonely. 40 years ago, the average person said that they had three friends. Now, the average person says that they have 1.3 friends. And you might, that might lead us to ask the question, what is one third, a third of a friend? Many of your friendships are a third of a friend, is what that is. Baby boomers, we talk about a previous generation. Baby boomers often didn't have friends because they were so busy with wealth accumulation and frankly just general world conquest that they lost the time and now have lost the energy and perhaps now the social ability to make friends. Some people, if you ask them, particularly if you talk to men and you go, do you have any, who's your best friend? And they go, a what? I, I think I had one of those. They moved to California 10 years ago. We've talked twice. That's who we think of as our best friends. Another generation came and went, or maybe simply this generation that I, I'm a part of, and maybe this is a generation that describes you. It works too much, travels too much, moves too much, and obsesses too much over their children to have deep friendships. Then came the next generation. This generation is so busy with its multifaceted communication platforms through social media, that they have a million relationships that all have to be built on 120 characters or less. Hard to build a deep relationship like that. And you know what? The church has not done a very good job promoting relationships either, friendships in particular. Now, we promote relationships in general. We are very pro-relationships. We love to use words like community and community groups and fellowshipping. We like these words. But often what we, how we describe those things is the generic, general aspects of community. And what we don't actually push people into is what actually is a longing of our hearts that so many of us are, are missing that through those community groups and through discipleship groups that we enter into lifelong, deep, intimate, and affectionate friendships. And, and in other words, what I would say is in so many ways, we expect way too much from the relationships in the general body and, and seek so too little to have one or two or three deep and profound relationships you know, when we neglect the reality of deep friendships, this is actually the place where the most powerful mentoring and discipleship happens. The most amount of, greatest amount of accountability happens, not in people you just met, and we all got in a circle and go, well, now we're going to hold each other accountable when you don't even know each other. No, accountability is built on trust built over years. And so if we're going to have true accountability... And we're going to actually encourage each other in the deep and profound ways that we need encouragement. We need friendships. Wisdom in the face of reality calls for friendships. Of all the things that can make life, though, in, this, in life all the more difficult and feel so vain is to look at our life and realize no one knows me deeply and I know no one deeply either. So the teacher is showing us here in this passage, in this little chunk of life being difficult, he's showing us we make it more difficult because we don't have friendships. And so this morning we're going to talk about the more. The more of friendship, the less of selfishness, and the best of friendships. First, the more of friendship. In praise of friendship, we see verses 9 through 12. We're going to move through, this, through these very quickly, these verses. The Bible commends friendship in four ways here in this section. First, friends work together effectively, right? We work better. Two are better than one, it says in verse 9, because they have a good reward for their toil. So many jobs in life are better together. 
and you get more done, and you get more done quickly when you do it with others. For example, we don't currently live in this house, but I, I, I had, the house we were in for about nine years here in Carrollton had m- many, many trees around, around the yard, and he would dump an ungodly amount of leaves in the yard, and I would spend whole days on Saturdays getting rid of the leaves. Now, the challenge of getting rid, and I, I went out, I bought the powerful uh, blower, and I thought, this is going to be the answer. No more calluses on my hands. They're dainty and delightful. I cannot have myself with a, you know, spending my Saturdays doing this, and so I got the blower. But you know what? It still was an unbelievably difficult challenge until somebody else got out there with another blower. If you have two blowers blowing leaves, guess what happens? You work not just twice faster, but four and eight times faster blowing leaves. Working together means you accomplish more. Second, friends help in times of need. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has another, does not have another to lift him up. Friends are there to pick each other up, to encourage each other. And we're at the end of our rope, to grab each other. Similarly, the third, friends comfort each other in the hard places of life. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? This strikes us as odd in a land of central heating. But if you were outside when it was cold, what's the main way when you're camping and you're in sub-zero temperatures that you have to try to save yourself? You got to snuggle up with somebody. And in a world without heating, it was absolutely critical. It's a metaphor. If you're by yourself, you get cold and you stay cold. But a friend helps. This can be a a metaphor as well for the spiritual life, for accountability, for encouraging and exhorting one another in our love and our, our following of Jesus. That praying with others helps. It inflames your soul and your love for Jesus. Gathering together Yeah, it is great to worship Jesus by giving voice in the shower. That's wonderful. You know, it's better to gather together here and worship Jesus. It's a reflection of the gospel to say, I need a friend. And a good friend comes along and says, I am not your God but and your Savior, but I will come alongside you and I will help you follow the true Savior better. When when your soul is cold, I will help pour flaming hot coals upon a cold soul and saying, isn't Jesus beautiful? This is what good friends do for one another. And fourth, it says this in verse 12, friends cushion the blows that life deals us. And verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will not withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solitary people are vulnerable people. The evil one loves to pick off the weak one who's been left out of the herd. Even Jesus surrounded himself with concentric communal circles, right? He had the 500, then he had the 72, then he had the 12, and then in the 12, he had the three, Peter, James, and John. Were deep friendships. And even maybe amongst the three, he had one, John, the disciple in whom he loved. What do friendships, spiritual friendships, look like in the church? Well, they have all the the marks of the general Christian community, right? If you read the Old Testament, you know there's over 50 one-anothering passages in the Old Testament. Love one another, serve one another, bear up with one another's burdens, encourage one another, forgive one another. These are all the requirements of your friendships. But there is a unique depth that comes with friendships in our life. A close and intimate friendship is able to bring that encouragement in a surgical manner in the way in which somebody who's a mere acquaintance in the church can't bring in your life. 
Proverbs. Let's look at some of the examples of this in Proverbs chapter 27. In three verses in chapter 27 of Proverbs communicates to us how a, a friend speaks in this very specific way. It says this, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Some of you don't have friends because you've not ever been willing to have a friend who will be a friend like this. And verse 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from their earnest counsel. A friend brings to you constructive misery. When someone who over the years has proven to you their love and affection to you is then the one who, in, out of that love and affection, has built that trust to enter your life and saying, this is not good. And to speak to you in particular, that knows the, the, the pathologies of your sin and your addictions and the way you run from the Lord and say, hey, you're doing it again, sister. You're running from Jesus in this way. He's better than this. He's better than this. Had a pastor friend describe to me, and by the way, this, this, you can have this friend in your marriage. This can be your marriage. Your, friend, your marriage shouldn't move towards this kind of friendship. It shouldn't be the only friendship you have. I, we need friendships outside of our marriage. And also, I'd say this, you know that, that 40% of those who are over the age of 18 in America are single? 40% of people in our country who are over the age of 18 are not married. And so we need these kind of friendships. But marriage can, can serve this as well. A friendship in marriage where you actually will speak this way to one another. Had, had a pastor friend uh, this week describe a man and his friendship with his wife and the, the strength of the relationship in helping this man grow and sanctify and develop. And he said this about the wife and her relationship with the husband. He said she is willing to say things to him that he needs to hear in a way that he can hear it. He's talking about how she was a great strength to him because she was willing not to pander, not to submit, but to come in as a helper and say, I'm going to say things to you in a loving manner, in a way that you can hear it. A true friend is someone who is loyal, who has seen the worst of you, who has been through adversity with you and sticks by you, and they are honest with you in that sticking by you. They tell you the truth, but they are also vulnerable. They allow you to tell them the truth. They say come to you, and they know they need help just as much as you do. So we need friendships. We need friendships. Now, some in the room might get super spiritual and say, well, I just need Jesus. I just really, all I need is God. You know what? That is absolutely true. But you need God in all the ways in which he chooses to love you today. Larry Crabb responds to this kind of notion by saying, yes, all you need is God and whatever in his love for you in this moment he has chosen to provide for you. You need him, and you need the gifts through which he serves you and cares for you. If you're married, you don't say, well, I don't need a wife. I've got God. No, you don't say that because God has provided you a wife, and so God is mediating his love to you through your wife. Now, if God in his providence removes your wife from your life, then you say, yes, I can be content even in this loss because I do have God. But God says one of the great ways in which I serve you and care for you and love you is by giving you others. And in Genesis chapter 2, the world is all good. God makes this and that, the stars and the heavens and the sky. He makes everything. He says it's good and it's beautiful. And then he makes Adam. And Adam's wandering around the garden and God goes, this isn't good. And so he says, I'm going to make a woman for man. And I'm going to give him a friend. This is how God has designed us to flourish. 
to be in deep, intimate, and affectionate relationships. And since the fall, even after the fall, friendship is God's way, as Ecclesiastes, in the context of Ecclesiastes, is to say, in a broken world, this is how I help you move and pilgrim in a broken world. And indeed, in the midst of a broken world, one of the ways in which God is putting the world back together is through friendship. So do you have any? Do you prioritize them? If I were to, this is becoming for me a prerequisite for leadership in the church. If the downline of being able to sit in a room, and this is beyond social abilities. This is the willingness to sit in a room and be authentic and vulnerable and know other people. And if you can't do that, you can't lead other people. Do you have friends? Do you have friends? When you fall, you need a friend. When you're afraid, you need a friend. When others rise against you, you need a friend. You need friends. Well, a friendship is so important, and in particular in the life of faith, what makes it, why do so few of us have deep friendships like this? Why do we have, on average, 1.3 friends? Well, the answer can be said about all relationships, but it becomes more and more true the more deep and intimate they are because we're selfish. Selfishness ruins relationships. And this is the second thing I want to talk to you about this morning, the less of selfishness. Life is better with friends. It's not as good without them. And, it is, it, and it, we don't have them often because of our selfishness. Life is hard. It is harder alone. And we are so, so, so alone. Most Americans continue to believe that we can make it on our own not only that, but that we must make it on our own. This is rugged American individualism. It's actually displayed in a movie that came out a number of years ago, probably 30 years ago now, called American Beauty, in which Carolyn Burnham, one of the main characters there in the film, looks at her daughter, and she, her daughter Jane, and her daughter Jane is dealing with some disappointments in life, and she says this to her, you're old enough now to learn the most important lesson in life, that you can't count on anyone except yourself. It's sad but true, and the sooner you learn it, the better. Now, that may be a part of American dogma, but living and working for ourselves is one of the fastest ways to turn the American dream into an American nightmare, and that is indeed what that movie is displaying. We are isolated, disconnected, and dissatisfied people. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. The teacher is saying, he's pointing out to us this vanity. I'll label vanity in this way in this text. That this is the vanity of living for the self. For living for the self. Now, of course, there are a million ways that we can live for ourselves. That we can be selfish. But he provides us three quick descriptions here as to what it looks like. And it's interesting. This description from three millennia ago could very much and very easily describe our culture. Here's what it is. First, envy. Verse 4. Then I saw all that toil and skill and work came from man's envy of his neighbor. This is striving in a life of toil that is born in an incubator that is inherently anti-relational. Envy is anti-others. It is envy against others in which you're not being for others. Envy runs on the fuel of comparison and competition. Envy runs on the lie that contentment and fulfillment will only happen when we gain more than those around us. Envy says, if only, if only I had that husband, and if only I had that job, and if only if I had that experience. Envy robs you of gratitude, 
and instead focuses your attention on what you believe you should have by now. Right now, you should have it. And nothing sucks the joy out of your present life and out of your relationships more than envy. This drives the ever-moving upward mobility uh, in the machine of our capitalistic society, and it is also what drives the class warfare of a socialistic one where one class is envious of another class. We do it individualistically, and we do it in social manners as well. Envy makes us resentful of others. It asks, why not me, and why not, what about me, and why not now? It makes you small-hearted in your relationships. We can't enjoy beautiful things simply because they are possessed by somebody else. Envy ruins our relationships because in competing and comparing, we are unable to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rather, instead, we mourn about those rejoicing. We can't be happy for their success, and we rejoice when those mourn. In which when we see their loss, there's something inside of us that goes, that's tickled by it. And this displays our depravity. Two of the most often spoken lies in the church. Here's the first one. Here's the first lie, most often spoken lie in the church. I'll pray for you. The second one is, I'm so happy for you. Dorothy Sayers said of envy, if I can't be happy, I'd rather see us all miserable. Gord Vidal philosopher in the middle part of the 20th century said, every time a friend succeeds, something in me dies. Envy makes you happy at others' misfortune. When our friends fall flat on their face, our sinfulness is such that we, we watch him or her mess up, and even as we hug them, there's something delightful and tasteful about their failure. David Gibson, who's a commentator and wrote a fabulous book on a book of Ecclesiastes, said this. It's a little bit longer quote, but bear with me. Deep in our hearts, we want to be noticed and to be the focus of attention. And that desire is capable of driving all we do and the reason we do it. Jesus says we're to love one another. But what I often feel is, what will it take to get what you have? If I envy you through loving you, in other words, a manipulative person who loves only to get something from you, then not only am I engaged in oppressing you, I have a cancer that eats at my heart and can destroy me even as I'm destroying you. This is because I have dressed up my selfishness and generosity and deceived both of us in the process. Yikes. That cuts. Envy is a relationship killer. Second, laziness. You know what also kills your relationships? Laziness. There's this really quick aside in verse 5. Hey, you're working really hard because you envy people. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The, quick, the teacher really quickly wants to kind of Make sure, hey, I don't want to leave you lazy people out of the equation. Remember, like, I want you to know, under all our obsessive labor, it's not just, that's not the only issue, because there are some, there are some who live such lazy lives that they can't give themselves to anybody else. Laziness is a form of selfishness and undercuts friendships. Because in friendships, we have to lift up other people. And we have to bear their burdens. And the lazy person can't do that. The lazy person has nothing to give. They will not work hard for it. The preacher makes a deliberately extreme statement that you just end up eating your own self to illustrate that the sluggard gives himself to himself and to no one else. He's for himself. So in the end, all that is left in his life is himself. 
And that won't last long. There is no food in the cupboard. He has nothing but himself to eat to survive. Now, you've seen a lazy person actually, you've never seen a lazy person eat themselves, but you might have seen a lazy person erode their self-control so much that they have nothing to give relationally to anybody else. Life is a, they've hoarded life to themselves, and it's actually destroyed their life. They ruin themselves, and they certainly have nothing to give to others. That's the second, laziness. The third vignette is workaholism, for lack of a better word. Verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. The preacher here is telling the sad story of a solitary individual who has worked his whole life to then turn around and look and see that there is no one with him. As the preacher looks at this man's life, he's, he, he, he goes day in and day out. He works from dawn to dusk. He has one long work week after another, working 60 and 70 hours. Who does this remind you of? This is Scrooge from the Christmas Carol. No matter what he gained, it was not enough. And gaining work and wealth was more important to him than any relationships. So no matter what he gained, the man had no one to whom to share it with. He was working too hard to make any friends anywhere. His only companion in life was his money. One writer put it like this, that the people who are like this, they could buy dinner for everybody in the room, but no one wants to sit with him. And that's all right, because he doesn't want to sit with them either. This obsessive place in life where we just go, 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 work, work, gain, and yet we look around and we have no one to share it with. You know the kind of person working for tomorrow, never stopping for today, to live today and to say, oh, it's always, hey, tomorrow I will spend time with my child. Tomorrow I'll go on that date. Tomorrow I'll invest in relationships in the church. Tomorrow, tomorrow, but tomorrow comes and it's filled with all of its pressures and toils and striving. And so tomorrow, when we're supposed to make those relationships, we push it again to tomorrow. The preacher's point is that we live this way. When we live this way, it's like shooting yourself in the foot just so you can hop more quickly with the other. That you, sh- you, you cut off this aspect of your life and we hop around and we think we're going quickly, more quickly, but really we're just exhausting ourselves. And in the end, do you have anyone who will actually miss you? Anyone who will actually miss you if you went bye-bye. There was a story, a very haunting story, a couple years ago in the Minneapolis Tribune by a woman named Ellen Goodman who wrote about the tragic story of a man who worked very hard as the man here in Ecclesiastes 4 did. And when he died at the age of 51, his obituary said that he, he died of a pulmonary or coronary thrombosis. But everybody in his life knew better. See, he was a man who had gone to work to his office six days a week from eight, and stayed there till eight or nine at night he, was, he would go in at the weekends and work on Saturday. Even when he was home, he was always distracted by his phone and, and his email. And so the woman who wrote the article says she notes that on, on the day of the man's funeral, that he had worked so hard that the president of the company had a company-wide gathering and said, all right, who's going to replace this guy? Because it needs to be the person who works hardest in the room, because that's what he did. But the true killer line in the article was delivered by the dead man's wife. When a person at the funeral said to her, I know how much you will miss him, the dead man's wife said, oh, I already have. He's been gone a very long time. 
The preacher is probing deep inside the human heart and saying all of the striving and toiling, working and working and working is all motivated by me. It's for me. And the result is in the end we have no one. What a life of vanity and of worthlessness and meaninglessness. Counselor, a psychologist, Brene Brown, many of you know her work. She's come to significant prominence over the last couple of years. She said, at the heart of loneliness is the absence of meaningful social interactions. This is that is intimate relationships, friendship, and the lack of genuine community is killing us. And she notes in one of her books that solitude and silence is, 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 can be deadly. She gives a number of stats, and here's what she says, that air pollution increases your odds of dying early by 5%. Living with obesity increases your odds by 20%. Excessive drinking, 30%. Living with loneliness increases our odds of dying early by 45%. The real pandemic we've experienced in the last couple of years is not the medical one, it's the relational one, in which we have, been, we have seen before our eyes that when we were told to go to our corners, we had no one to go there with. And so people shriveled away and died. And how did this happen? How have we gotten to this place? To put it in psychological terms, you ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Right, you know, level one, food, sleep, etc. Level two, security, employment, reserve resources. Level three, love and belonging. Four, self-esteem, confidence. Level five, self-actualization, realizing your full potential in life. These kind of labels. In selfishness, though, we make every level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs about me. They are my needs. And that's what life becomes about. In other words, we become obsessed with self-actualization and self-preservation. My growth, my needs, mine. And the drive of our selfishness, that what is underneath the selfishness, is a fear that I will not be all that I can be. Or that you might take something from me that I might need tomorrow. Fear that we won't have enough food, fear that we won't be liked, fear that we won't have security, fear that we lose our reserve of resources, fear that we won't achieve. And therefore, relationships are viewed for the, through the lens of what either I can get from them to help me move up the chain or, or out of fear of what they might take from me in my life. So friendships will take something from you. They might slow at least in the short term, the process of you moving up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It, you know, having a friend might mean that you'll stop and life will get difficult for a while. It will tax you. You will have to bear burdens. You will have to go deep. You will have to feel insecure because you're gonna have to share something about your life. But it's, so in order to have deep and healthy relationships, then, then we must have, to, we need to get over this fear that's driving our lives. How do you get over Fear. Well, the answer in Ecclesiastes, which will be our answer most weeks, is you need to fear something else more greatly. The fear of the Lord is the whole theme and application of Ecclesiastes. The fear of not being able to preserve oneself or to achieve your needs will destroy you and destroy your relationships. But it says this in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And that fearing the Lord will be the thing that actually sets you free from all of those other things that will allow you to move into relationships. And what we, we talked about this each week. What is the fear of the Lord? In the most simplistic terms, the fear of the Lord, to fear the Lord means that you live in the reality of who God is. Coram Deo. 
before the face of God. And what is the reality of who God is? What is the reality of who God is in Christ Jesus that we so desperately need? What does it look like to live before the face of God and his character? Well, this morning, guess what aspect of God's character in Jesus Christ we're going to look at? It's the fact that when Jesus comes, he is called the friend of sinners. And he offers us the best of friendships. The gospel provides for us the fulfillment we need in the friendship of God. If you have no friends, what do you need? Well, the chicken soup for the soul wisdom, Aesop's fables wisdom is this. You're not, you, unless you're a, you be a friend, you can't have friends. But what if you're unable? What if you don't have the resources or the capability? What if you don't have the energy? So, because every instinct of your nature says mine. Preserve, gain, get, protect. It's all mine. And so you know what? No one wants to be your friend. This instinct in us to preserve ourselves is actually what keeps us from the relationships we so desperately need. And we get to a life where we simply don't have the energy, the motivation, or even the social skills to work on our friendships. And yet the story of the Bible is giving us that exact bad news. That in your relationship with God, you were selfish. That you said, I don't want you, I want to live life my way. You say, I want to be lifted up, but I don't want to lift others up. You want to be defended, but you don't want to risk to defend others. You want to hog the blanket, but not share the warmth. Not only that, but in your fear and insecurity with the Lord, you always play hard to get. When people pursue you, you make a selfish person. But in the story of the Bible, this is how we relationally treated God. We ran from him. We used smoke screens. We said, I don't want you to know me. I don't want you to draw near to me. I don't want you to move in my life. And even when we did move towards him, it was not to get him, but to get what? His stuff. This is what the older brothers do. We use our religions in order to get, get the stuff of God and the gifts of God, but we don't want the friendship with God. So that's really bad news. This is where we're going. And the core reason you're selfish and the reason that life and relationships are live for me to preserve, is to preserve me, to build me up, for, to, to, to give life to me is because in the fall, we were cut off from the one relationship that was actually going to enable us to move towards other people. But this is the good news, that there was one who had the heavenly social skills to break into relationship with you. And you know what those social skills are called? And God's economy, they're called love, truth, and righteousness. And out of God's holy love and out of Jesus' perfect righteousness, God pursued you even when everybody else dropped out and dropped you because of your selfishness. And time and time again, we've looked at God and said, I don't want to have friendship with you. This is going to be too difficult and too hard. I don't want you in my life. And we say no to God. And God's response to us is, okay, want to get pizza? And he keeps coming after us and he keeps pursuing us and he ultimately breaks in and brings redemption and friendship into our life. Now again, the problem is that in our rejection of, sin, of, of friendships, we have sinned and sinned against not just others, but against God. Your sin is relational. God said, I want to walk with you in the garden. We say, yeah, I'd rather have some fruit. I'd rather make things about myself and what I want. And this relational rift is called sin. And it has created the insurmountable rift that is between us and God. So unless somebody bridges that gap, we cannot be forgiven. But that is the story of the cross. That in Jesus Christ, we have one who said, I want to be friends with you so desperately that I'm going to enter into your lostness, take your wrath that you deserve to give you the forgiveness that you need so that you can be reconciled to me and so that you may eternally have friendship with God. This is what Jesus has done for us. And so in order to bridge that gap, Jesus has come to the cross 
And because he is the best of friends, he said, I am willing to do so. So Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. And that is exactly what Jesus has done to us. And that is, that is the God who is. Do you live quorum Deo before the face of the God who is your friend? Who has looked at you when you ran from him and spat at him and screamed at him and you manipulated him with your religion and he said, I'm still coming for you and I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to make you mine. And so in our restored relationship with Jesus, what this provides for you is the hope that you can actually have a relationship with friends in this room. Because your relationship with Jesus and with the Lord, you're finally restored to that thing that will give you the reservoir. In Jesus, you're actually fully self-actualized. In Jesus, you don't have to preserve life for yourself. He's given you his life. At the high end, we want to be the best that we can be. You know what Jesus says? He comes and gives you his righteousness and says, you are glorious and you are beautiful. We long for acceptance in our relationships. He comes and says, you're accepted and beloved in my sight. We long for security. He says, I'm going to wrap my arms around you and I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. We say, I need food. And he says, I will provide for you daily bread. In him, we have one who will provide us all we need so that we can turn around and give ourselves to others. You don't have to look at life as if everybody is a threat anymore. And you can actually move towards relationships. And it is out of that relationship with Jesus Christ, out of that relationship with God in which you as my friend. And when you do that, you will find their reservoir in which you will actually be able to move towards other people and extend the acceptance that they long to have from you and the forgiveness that they long to have to give to you. Do you have any friends? Jesus is your friend so that you might be enabled to make friends finally. And that is good because friendship in this unhappy world is one of God's great gifts. Let's pray.